0: we're going to be in the book of 1st Timothy this morning, the book of 1st Timothy. You guys can open up there. Week 2 of our series. I know I know I say this all the time, especially whenever we sing that that song, but it always just strikes me that as I look around the room and we're singing that song and singing about how God has always been faithful and he's been good to us and that he he always will be faithful. You know, some of you guys are singing that song like somebody who's standing on a rock, who's completely sure of their footing, who who can stand there with with uh, with no reservation and proclaim every truth of that song, and you, you sing it with all that you've got, and you have you have no fear that the earth will give way underneath you. But some of you sing that song like somebody who's walked out in the middle of a frozen pond, and you're standing on the ice, and you believe that the ice is going to hold you up, but but you're a little bit nervous, like, like maybe this will give way. I'm not sure. I'm out here. I've put my faith on this ice to keep me up, but I, I'm just going to sing this. I'm, I'm going to sing it the same way I would stand on this ice, which is kind of one eye on the ground and, and, and one eye to the shore and hoping that I make it across. And you don't have quite the same confidence as those who sing it like they're standing on a, on a rock, that, that they have completely sure footing. And that is the beauty of church to me. That is what's so good about church is those two people are, are sitting next to each other in a row. Those two people are, 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 are sitting right next to each other. They're right across from each other. And sometimes one person needs to be able to look over to the other one and say, man, I know what they've been through. And they're singing that like their feet are planted and they are firm. So I'm going to borrow their faith just for a little bit. I'm going to borrow their faith just for a little bit because, because I know what they've done and what they've been through. And And man, they have confidence in this song, so I'm going to have confidence in this song too. I'm going to have confidence in the same God that they have confidence in, even when I can't feel it, even whenever I'm worried that the ground will give way, I know they've been there too, and they've made it to the other side. And so that's part of why I love church, just being able to do that. We don't all have to walk in here completely certain of every step that we take and every moment that we live, but we walk in here and we are 100% on board with one another, and we say, this is what I believe, and this is what I know to be true, and if you need, to, if you need to, to walk alongside me, then I'll help you, and I'm here with you, and we're going through this together. So, Sermon 1 over, let's move to Sermon 2 now, um, and, and 1 Timothy. So we're, we're back in this series, Surrounded, God's plan when the world is closing in. And this morning, we're really going gonna to dig into that idea of what it means when the world has surrounded God. Kind of where I get this sermon series title from is really the, the, the genesis comes out of uh, what I'm going to lay out for you this morning in this sermon. And So last week we looked at the book of, uh, uh, we, we began by looking at Paul and Timothy. Paul, the, the, the evangelist and the church planner, has left Ephesus. He's, he's planted this church, but he's gone on to uh, another city in order to kind of uh, uh, deal with some things that are going on there. And when he leaves Ephesus... Uh, This city that we'll see that is very strategic in its importance on many levels. When he leaves Ephesus, he hands it over to uh, this new elder at the church, Timothy, the guy who's been his protege and his right-hand man. He hands over the reins of the church to to, to Timothy as one of the, the elders there. And he says, Timothy, here's my instructions for you. Here's what I need you to do. And he says, this is what it looks like. Uh, to be the church. And what we're going to see very quickly here this morning, and as we go throughout this series, we'll see it even more, is that Timothy has got his hands full. Timothy has got his hands full, and he's dealing with all kinds of problems. We know from other parts of the letter that Timothy is young, probably in his 20s. Uh, I know that, that like, youth groups love to claim that verse and, and pretend like he's 14, but he's not. He's in his 20s. Um, the, the, the pattern still holds about uh, not letting anyone look down on you because you are young, but Timothy is in a place where he's going to have to work hard to gain some respect from those that are around him, especially since Paul had all this respect, but Paul is now gone, who was the older uh, kind of mentor, so he's probably in his 20s. This church is about 10 years old, just about the same age as we are as a church here at Providence, about about 10 years old, and is starting uh, for them, they're starting to kind of show some fractures. They're kind of starting this to, to, to show some places where, uh, where things aren't, aren't really jive in the way that they're supposed to. And some things are happening that, that are making Paul uneasy and make it, making it a, a little bit nervous for him to even leave Ephesus in the first place. But he knows he's got to go. And so he says, Timothy, here's what you're going to have to deal with. And these fractures are coming both from within the church and pressures from outside the church. And so I wonder what kind of advice would you expect to hear uh, for would you expect to hear for a church that is surrounded by a culture that does not share its values and honestly would prefer would prefer that the church not exist at all now this is not hard for us to imagine i mean a casual viewing of the of the news a casual uh, run through twitter a casual reading of any of our national newspapers and very quickly we're going to we're going to see that uh, that, that 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 this culture that we live in, that we live in here in the United States is not exactly friendly to the beliefs that we have. It's not exactly set up to accept our beliefs, and that's here in the U.S. You go other places in the world, and it's far worse. the 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 idea of Christian values is not only not popular; it's flat out not welcome in a lot of circles. Uh, and so, in recent years, we we've, we've moved from saying that uh, that that not only are Christian, uh, Christians are really not valued in spaces, uh, but they're not welcome in spaces. And certainly their beliefs are not welcome. Uh, and so, so we don't have to imagine too much where Timothy is at here in Ephesus. And so my question for you is, if you were writing this letter, what would, your, what would you suggest that the response be for this church in this place? What would you say the church's response should be? Now, here in Jefferson City, we may not brush up against quite the same level of like, cultural uh, ant- antagonism that, we, that you might if you were in a major city. But increasingly, we know what it means to be ostracized and dismissed for what we believe. It just doesn't take a lot of imagination. The, co- the culture is, without a doubt, hostile to us. And so just, you know, in, in your own mind, how would you instruct a church to operate in a major city that, that really has nothing to do, that, that doesn't want to have anything to do with this new, this new church and this new way of belief? What instructions would you give? Now, there's a lot of different ways to respond to this type of situation that, that uh, the church in Ephesus found themselves we can go all in on politics, and we can hope that our politicians pass laws that, uh, that protect us from this kind of treatment, treat our politicians as our great hope and our great defender, and then mor- mortgage our face reputation on these politicians. We can adopt a posture of us versus them, where, where we... Where we uh, where we kind of stand up to this treatment, and say, I'm not going to be treated this way, and then for every insult that is hurled at us, we hurl an insult right back at them, kind of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, Type of thing, and it becomes this uh, constant battleground. And every public square, every public medium, every public place that we can go becomes not a place for civil discourse, not a place for conversation, not a place for a community to come together and make a place better, but instead, every public medium becomes a place to fight. It becomes a battleground. That's one way that we can handle this. Or some have advocated that we retreat that we as Christians should kind of withdraw from society, that we take the posture that this, uh, this society as it currently exists is beyond repair, beyond hope. It is beyond anything that, that is our, within our purview to kind of address. And so we back off, kind of hunker down into our, sh- into our uh, shell, and we forego any opportunity to speak into uh, this type of community. This is a very popular idea, especially in a lot of, uh, kind of Christian academic circles out there, that we just kind of get in this, we pray for it all to end so that we can kind of come back up and pick up the pieces after the destruction is final, after the, the world is kind of finished uh, kind of eating its own, then eventually we can, we can emerge from our, uh, our our bunker and we can say, okay, what's left of, of this world, of this society, of this culture, uh, and we'll speak into it at this point. Others have advocated that a better response would be that we just simply move on from the old dated orthodoxy of, of, a, of a book that is thousands of years old. That we just kind of move on from that. Because after all, if we just, we just adopt a, a posture of love and acceptance, that feels more like the Jesus that, 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 that we think we see in, in the Bible. And so the, the motto becomes adapt or die. Uh, or better, better said, evolve or become extinct. We simply can't be expected to uphold the ethics from uh, a book that was written thousands of years ago in a modern society. So we take the good, whatever the good is that we deem to exist, and how we decide between that is kind of totally dependent on what feels good to us at the moment. But we take the good and the acceptable and we dismiss the rest. There's a lot of approaches, and there's, and there's honestly kind of a, a lot of in-betweens in all of those that kind of blend some of those things and kind of do some of those things together. There's a lot of approaches to dealing with being surrounded. The question for us this morning is we have to reject that third one flat out right off the bat because for us here at Providence, what we will say is that uh, our number one chief value is the absolute authority of Scripture, We will bow to what scripture says and what scripture teaches. So the next question has to be, what does the Bible tell us to do? How does the Bible tell us to live in a culture like that? And that is what 1 Timothy, at least in part, is going to do. And I think you're going to be surprised whenever you read what it is that Paul tells us to do. I'm going to give you a hint of where we're going over the next few weeks. In short, Paul's instructions for how you are to live in a society that is built against you is go to church go to church that 's the answer for how you deal with a culture that, is, that, is sur- that has surrounded you and said you 're not welcome here, and your values have no place in this culture." Paul says, "Go to church now what he 's going to say is now when you go to church here 's what it looks like, maybe not completely it 's not a full throated instruction on this is how every church does stuff, but he 's going to tell Timothy. Here's what it looks like to do church in Ephesus. And then we've got to to draw from that what it looks like for us to do church in Jefferson City. So this is what it is that we're going to do. The the response that Paul gives might be a little bit simple, but as we start to work through it, I think what you're going to see is that it has some pretty profound implications. So we'll get started today. We won't answer that question completely ...as to how you do this, but we will get the first of the answers this morning. So let's start back at the very top, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what we looked at last week. Now we have the next paragraph that we'll look at this week. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith so much information in just a couple of verses here we talked about like i said Timothy and Paul uh, last week and then i kind of got carried away and i started talking about Ephesus in the context of uh, of this letter uh, but i didn't fully get to explain what all was going on here so i'll do that this morning Paul tells Timothy in verse 3 that he wants Timothy to remain in Ephesus. and We'll talk talk about it in just a second, but for now we have to look at at where he's asking him to stay. We'll talk about what he's asking him to do here in a second, but for now we need to look at where he's asking him to stay. Paul's planted this church. uh, As I said, it's been around for about 10 years. It's been an eventful 10 years. A lot has gone on in that time. If we're going to understand anything about the book of 1 Timothy, we have to understand the context it's written. The city plays a massive role in understanding everything Paul is going to talk about in the coming verses. Ephesus is a city that comes up a lot in the New Testament. If you've got your phones and you start searching for Ephesus, you're going to see that the city of Ephesus is listed all over the New Testament. From from early days in Acts all the way to Revelation, Ephesus comes up a lot. There's a, there, there's a whole letter that is written directly to the elders and to the church of the Ephesians. And when, uh, when Paul and Timothy are traveling, it comes up a lot. He does a lot of stuff there. And the reason why is because this is a major city in the trade and in the economy uh, of, the, of the Roman Empire. So there's a map here. You can look at this map and, and see the map. You can see kind of where, uh, where Ephesus is. It's not the greatest map. Uh, but you can see it's, it's located right on the, the coast there, right? And now you can't see, but, but Jerusalem's like way down here in the corner, like, like at the edge of the screen. It's a long way from the epicenter of where Jesus did his ministry. It's a long way from the epicenter of where Peter was at and where, uh, where, where Peter was doing a lot of his stuff before he made it all the way to Rome. But it's in this place right here. But you see, it, it's it's right on the coast, and it had established itself as one of the major trade routes in the entire world. So much flowed through that city. Whether you were in on land and you were going up or down, you would go through Ephesus. If you were coming uh, through the the, the um, uh, by sea, Ephesus was one of the chief ports for you to go to. It was huge in the economy of the Roman Empire, and because of that, it was a city that had massive influence. What came into Ephesus and what came out of Ephesus had impacts all over the, 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 the countryside and all over, uh, honestly, the, the, the world there uh, around them. It had tremendous influence and was strategically important. It was also a highly religious city. Perhaps the most famous event in Scripture for the city of Ephesus is when Paul visited there in an, early, uh, an earlier missionary journey, uh, journey uh, and, 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 and it kind of gives us a picture of what it would have been like to try to plant a church in the earliest days of this city. Turn with me to Acts chapter 19. If you look in Acts chapter 19, I'm going to read a huge chunk of scripture here, but I'm going to read it because it simply tells a story. There's not a lot to explain. You can kind of really read with me and see what happens here. But I'm going to read through this whole chunk from Acts chapter 19, and it will give you an idea. This is, remember, this is only about 10 years prior to what we're reading in the instructions to Timothy. Some even think it's right on the heels to this, depending on the timeline that you look at. It may have happened right after this, uh, but it's probably about ten years later. So Acts chapter 19, verse 23. Let's look at this story of what happened to Paul in this city, Ephesus. Acts nineteen, twenty-three. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. I love that that that's how the Christianity is described in Acts, the way. It's not just like a thing. It's something you do. It it implies that there are implications to what it is that you're doing. But uh, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades, and he said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus and Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go into the crown, the disciples would not let him. So Paul wanted to get out there and kind of confront this crowd. And they were like, dude, you're going to die. Don't do that. Um, And even as some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, and for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. So it's a mob. It's a mob. Nobody even knows what they're doing. They're just like chanting along with them, but it's this mob that, that has kind of gotten stirred up against Paul. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, "'Great is Artemis of the Ephesians!' And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, "'Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is a temple keeper of the great Artemis, and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky?' Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought, to, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are ne- neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there there are proconss uh, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. It's a lot. It's a wild story, isn't it? It's a wild story, but it gives you a picture of what is going on in Ephesus, what is going on. Paul had planted this church, and when he planted this church, he had the audacity to say... Hey, all you tradesmen, you, you woodworkers, you silversmiths, you blacksmiths, you people that are, that are building these little trinkets and these little idols dedicated to Artemis and selling them and making your living off of them. Hey, you, you people need to know that these people are just robbing you blind because there's nothing in those things that have any value. They're just trinkets. They're nothing. A God made by human hands is no God at all. And that message had so taken root in the city of Ephesus that the tradesmen in the city were getting nervous. They were starting to look at their books and their, their profit was going down month by month. Less and less people were coming to the market to buy these trinkets. Less and less people were coming to the, the city and, and, and coming through the city because the, the message had gone so far and wide that, that the, uh, the tourists had, had gone down a little bit. It just wasn't the bustling city that it was anymore because they were, they, they, this message was getting out that this Artemis and, and these trinkets that they're making really have no power at all. And so what they did is they stirred up a mob against Paul. And what they wanted to do is, is, is nothing short of kill Paul. They rushed him into uh, the theater. So sh- show the picture of the theater up here. Get, get an idea of this. I, I love being able to see this, this picture. That's no joke, man. Like, that's a serious, like, amphitheater. And you can just see, like, Paul off to the the side there, kind of behind the the stage a little bit. And over 2,000 men in that theater chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. I don't know that we would sing Rocky Top for two hours, right? For two hours, they're chanting this just over and over and over. And why is this happening? It's happening because he has challenged their idols and he's challenged their goddess. And here's what you need to know about the goddess of, of Artemis. We're going to talk a lot about the goddess of Artemis in some, some sermons coming, uh, coming up uh, in the future. But what you need to know right now is that, that this city was built around the worship of Artemis. This city was built around uh, the, this, this, this goddess. Show, show the next picture. Bring the next picture up, and I want to show you this temple. So this temple was in Ephesus. It is the temple of Artemis, or the temple of Diana. It's the same person, just depending if you're, if you're using the Greek term or not, but Diana or, or Artemis, same person. This temple was there. This temple is known as one of the ancient wonders of the world. You can go to Ephesus now, and there's still ruins of it. You can see that it is uh, that it's still there. It was known as one of the ancient wonders of the world. This is what they were known for this temple had been built around a, a, a rock that at least uh, looking at it here in acts either supposedly did or somebody saw fall from the sky and they took that to be uh, they took that to be as coming from one of the gods and they determined that it was from artemis and so they built this temple around it and the worship of this temple so it, it affected everything in the city it affected the economy of the city it affected everything that happened there it, 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 it shaped everything. And so it's very clear that whenever Paul goes into the city and he starts preaching against, uh, uh, against uh, Artemis, although it looks like, according to what he, he, the charges that were kind of brought against him, uh, he, he's not fully gone in preaching against Artemis yet, so much as it is he's gone in against all the uh, the economy and the market that's built up around the worship of Artemis. And so he's not even gone after Artemis yet. And they already want to see him killed. Now can you imagine if you're a church planner in that city and you've got to say, hey, this, this temple that you've built is useless. Hey, all, all of you who have built your entire livelihoods around the worship of this goddess, Useless. All of you people who have, since the day you were born, heard of the story of Artemis and how she was born, and you think that that has something to do with who you are and why you exist, it's all just a tale. It's all just a myth. It's all nonsense. Can you imagine how hard it would be as a pastor to stand up in that city and tell that culture that? He would have felt surrounded. He would have felt completely surrounded. And so what it tells us after this is that Paul, Paul kind of slipped out of Ephesus here at this point and said, all right, I've got to go until things kind of cool down a little bit. And so if we take the, this is like 10 years later, Paul had likely come back to Ephesus, visited in on the church, and then needed to go take care of something somewhere else, and he's put Timothy now in charge. And notice how they don't just call Artemis a god. She is Artemis of the Ephesians. And this is their calling card as a city. This is who they are. This is what they have done. This is, this is all of it. The, the, the city was dominated by the worship of Artemis. And that, it, it's in this city that Timothy has to figure out how to plant the gospel of Jesus Christ. Knowing that Paul was almost killed simply for saying, Hey, your little, your little pieces of silver that you've made are worthless. It would have profound implications on the city, from their worldview to how they worshipped their gods. And Timothy, you, you, know, you know, it's one thing for for, for, for me, for, for us, to plant a church here in Jefferson City, right? So we open the doors here, and generally, people know what's happening, right? I mean, they may not know what songs we're singing, they may not know, are we a happy clappy, or are we like a... Are are, are we more like a, a church that's more reserved? They may not know exactly what our style is, but they generally have a concept for what church is. But what Timothy is doing, what Paul was doing in planting a church, is he was putting a totally new thing in their midst, something totally foreign to them. They weren't even Jewish in their background for the most part there. Some of the people in Ephesus would have been Jews, but that would have been a very minority culture in the city of Ephesus. So what Paul is doing when he plants this church is he's saying, hey, this is totally new, guys. But what we're going to see is that they brought the worship of Artemis and the way things were done in the temple of Artemis into the church. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not how we're going to do things. We're going to look very different. So all of that kind of gives you the context of what is happening here. And we will revisit this several times in this series, because it comes up again and again and again. So let's go back and read 3 and 4 again, and then I want to see what it is that Paul does here. So 3 and 4. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So Paul says, I've got two big things that I need you to take care of for me, Timothy. These are things just right off the top you need to be aware of. Bad theology and bad storytelling. Bad theology and bad storytelling. Here, here's what I mean by that. Someone was teaching from inside the church. We don't really find out who. We, we kind of get a hint of maybe who it might be. but we, Here's the thing about 1 Timothy that's a little bit frustrating. You're, you're, you're hearing half the phone call, right? You're hearing half the phone call, and you're not exactly sure, like, Who's he talking about? What's going on there? And we get hints as to what's going on, but we're never told exactly what's going on. And so when you read the commentaries to 1 Timothy, you have an endless amount of people speculating about, well, this is probably the the thing that Paul was dealing with. Well, this is probably what was happening. A lot of people think that there's a, a, a Gnosticism or there's a legalism kind of similar to the book of Galatians that is happening in Ephesus and... And, and, but they based that on some things that kind of came up really more like second century. Well, that's almost 100 years later that they're talking about whenever they start, they start talking about some of the, these things. So like, to me, that's a bit of a guess. Uh, it's a bit of a, of a venture. I would rather go with what we know about what's going on in the city. And so some of it I will speculate, but not a lot, all right? I wanna try to stick with what Paul has to say here and say, what is it that he's dealing with and, and go with what Paul gives us and what it is. So we don't know exactly what is happening here. All we know is that the Ephesian church is starting to get some doctrine wrong. They're starting to get some things wrong in their doctrine. The storytelling goes back to Artemis. It talks about myths and endless genealogies. That's the way the Greek god system worked. It was all based on genealogies. Oh, well, this person gave birth to this person who gave birth to this person. This God gave birth to this God and this goddess and that God were brothers. We'll see all that as as we get into this. And so that's what I mean whenever I say bad storytelling, because what happens is a story develops out of of who Artemis is and and the, the story of Artemis. So the story of Artemis begins to inform the story of the people of Ephesus. The creation of Artemis and where she comes from begins to inform the creation of the people of Ephesus. They start to say, well, if if Artemis is is born this way and it means this about women and it means this about men, then this is what's true about me. That's bad storytelling. They're telling themselves a bad story, a myth. They're telling themselves something that is fake, something that is not real, but they're building their entire lives around this myth. And so this is, this is what Paul's addressing. Bad doctrine, bad storytelling. That's the two things that he says, Timothy, I need you to take care of these things. Be on guard for these things. Paul says this stuff is nonsense. It doesn't teach you anything about the true God. So get it out of the church. Be on guard for it. Check your teachers and what they're teaching. Paul then goes on this like mini-sermon about what it is that they're to do there in Ephesus, about the kind of people they want to be in this world that has them surrounded. So this is verse 5. Let's read 5 through 11. It gets a little like squirrely, kind of like, what are you talking about, Paul? But it's not as complicated as it seems once you get into it. Verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. Desiring to be... Vain discussion, that is a key phrase we'll come back to a lot. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they are making confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. For those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, for the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Wow, Paul, that's quite the soapbox that you just took this opportunity to jump right on, right? Goodness gracious, Paul, where did this come from? No one asked. And Paul's like, let me just let, let him have it here for a minute. Like nobody, nobody's asking, Paul, what can we do and what can we not do? And Paul's like, I'm going to tell you anyway. Here's all of this stuff. And I love the final category. And anything else I forgot to mention. All of it's bad. Just this kind of sweeping thing. Don't do it. Now, if we're to take Paul's words here and just read that second paragraph from 8 to 11. If we're to take Paul's words and just read from 8 to 11 then that seems to suggest that we as a church that is surrounded by a culture that does not like us, that does not follow in our, uh, our ethic and our theology, that we need to take up an offensive position. An offensive, not an offensive, an offensive. Same word, different meaning. An offensive position, right? That we need to be going after people like this. That we need to be going after them and, and, and we, need to, we need to make it we need to make it really, really clear because we have a good argument about the way things are supposed to be. Go after these guys. The law is clear. Enslavers are bad. Homosexuality is bad. Lying is bad. The ungodly and the profane are bad. So let's just get after them and show them just how bad they are. The best offense is, or the best defense is a good offense. That's, that's the motto of this crowd, right? If you take just this paragraph, it's just a, this isn't just a list of sins that Paul gives us. It's marching orders. These are the sins. Go after these guys. We want to be done with them. Use the law. Get after them. More than once, I've seen these very verses quoted on social media and blogs of evidence of our role as Christians here in America. Sick them. Go get them. Let them have it. Get after them. Show them who is holy and show them who is not and show them just how wicked they are. The problem with all of that, of course, is the paragraph that comes before it and the paragraph that comes after it. Now, I'm not going to get to the paragraph that comes after it. That's next week. But we'll look at what, we'll, we'll look at what comes before it. We just read it. Verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. So certain persons who have wandered away from these, what are these? Love, sincere faith, a pure conscience. These these things, a pure heart and a good conscience. Certain people have ventured away from that. So they're not operating out of those motives, they're operating out of a different motive. They've wandered away, and where did they wander into? Vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding so they stand up to start preaching the law but they don't know what they're talking about they sound confident in what they're talking about but really they don't know what they're talking about so paul lays out this whole reason that the church exists in ephesus in the first place love that comes from a heart and a conscience that is clear with a faith that is real that is why the church is there this is why the church has been planted in Ephesus. It's not planted in Ephesus to go after those unholy sinners. It is planted in Ephesus on the basis of love. Paul says we're not here to pick a fight. We're here to love. Now, is there a sense in which we are to contend for the faith as we are told elsewhere in the New Testament? Absolutely. But this frames what this looks like for us. Paul tells us that when we pick a fight on the basis of the law, in other words, when we call people out for how much they sin and how bad they are, when we pick that fight, we have moved from love to a vain discussion. In other words, it's not about others anymore At its root, it's really just about ourselves. It's really just about trying to prove how good we are. It's really just about trying to to, to puff ourselves up. It's really just trying to kind of sit back and say, man, I used to be such a terrible person, but look how good I am now. You people are the problem. You people are the unholy and the profane. You people are the terrible people it's not about them and caring for them. It's all about vain discussion. It's all about looking at yourself. He says you make these confident assertions about the law, about how bad people, all, how bad, bad people are and all the terrible ways that people sin. And for sure, all of that is true. This is the hard part, right? Right? Whenever you get in these discussions and people start listing out these sins, and they'll be like, well, isn't that true? You're not supposed to do those things. Well, yes, it is true. But how you use the law is everything. How you use the law and how you confront these people is everything. Paul says it's not enough just to throw the law out there and say, look, you don't measure up, you big loser. He says you can't just do it that way. It's all about what you do and how you do it. Paul says the whole point in the law, he says this here and he says it elsewhere, the whole point in the law is to show us our sins. So that's fair, yes, absolutely. Use the law in that way. He says you're confident in your assertions and your call-outs and you're putting people on blast, but all of that, if all of that doesn't come from a heart that is pure, from a faith that is real, and from a goal that is love then all you've got is some vain assertions and some vain discussions. All that noise isn't about God, it's not about holiness, and it's not even about his law. It's about you and how good you think you are and how much better you think you are and how well you think you keep the law. Paul says enough with that nonsense. Get it out of here. That's not the church. Shut those guys down. That's bad doctrine." That's not how we use the law. Paul says we didn't plant a church in Ephesus to, to, to spew these, these stories out here. We didn't plant a church in, in Ephesus in order to, uh, to, to confront people in this way. We didn't come here to beat them over the head with the law. Does, law, does the law expose sin? Yeah, absolutely. Should we use it to to do so when we talk to our Christian friends? Absolutely. Again, that's why we have the law. That's why it has been given to us. But what makes all the difference is why we're doing it. If we're just doing it for ourselves, then we need to shut our mouth and go back to the hole God drug us out of. Stop it. So long as the church builds its mission on making itself look good at the expense of making others look bad, we'll never be able to communicate the gospel effectively to our culture. Never. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God, as Paul says, that's a mouthful. I had to like look that up four times just to get that right. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God doesn't go forward on sharp tongues and condescending accusations. It goes forward by humble men and humble women with a deep-rooted faith, loving others more than they love themselves. It is the only way the gospel will go forward. It is how God has designed it. So Paul says, Timothy, get these guys out of the pulpit. Get these guys and their influence out of the church. They're using the law. They act like they know what they're talking about, and they're fools, and they're ruining the witness of the church. They use these words that sound good. They use these words that sound holy. They don't know what they're talking about because they don't do it the right way. They're all about themselves and making themselves look good by calling others out and trying to tear them down. That's not what we're doing here. Our aim is love. Our goal is love. Stop using the law as a weapon to hurt people. Use it as a scalpel, as a surgeon would to expose and help people. And there's all the difference in the world in those two intentions. All the difference in the world. So now we're off and running. Paul has begun to show Timothy and us how to exist in a world that wishes we weren't even here. We don't run to a fight. Our aim isn't to... to, to insult or to wound. Our aim is nothing short of love. And that's super important because I can, I can tell you, I, I, I can tell you like, you know, sh- shoot at the target, but if I don't tell you what the target is, you're not going to know where to shoot, right? Just because I hand you a, a, a weapon that's full of ammo doesn't mean you're going to know how to use it or where to shoot it. And what Paul says Here's what I've been given, the law. That law can wound, it can hurt, it can destroy, or it can be used as a doctor would use a tool to heal, to expose, and to to, to draw out the infection and to heal. It can do either one. What is your aim? What is the goal? What is the target? This is our target, church. This is our goal. Rooted in love with all humility. We'll see that next week. that we would see others come to Christ, that others would, yes, be exposed by the law, but also be gently restored and brought to Christ because of our love for them. We're not here to pick a fight. We're here to love people. Let's pray. Father, this morning we confess that too often it is our heart's desire to go after people, to be proven right, to be in a place where we say, this is who we are and... And, 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 and you can't fight with me, you can't criticize me, I'll come right back at you. Too often, we have a position where we want to fight and we do not want to love. So Father, I pray that this morning you would begin to, to break our hearts for the people that are around us, for the culture that is around us, for the, 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 the people that we see. And that we would not pick a fight, but instead that we would love because you first loved us.